Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good morning, my friend. Good morning, and uh, belatedly... Good day. I should just say good day. Good day. Good day, sir. Yes. Quite so. And um, happy belatedly uh, Independence Day to to you and yours and the the gang all around you. I guess everybody's in recovery mode now. Yeah, I actually spent it at the beach in New Jersey, at a beach I'd never been to called Point Pleasant. And it's like... Did it live up to its name? It it was like being in a sort of 90s hip-hop video. Although maybe still contemporary on the beach, like a California hip-hop video on the beach. It was just like, it was like this, there was this, we went to this place that was like a, a beach, like tiki bar restaurant kind of thing with like five bars and mm. all these places. There was like mist to keep you cold, like at the, cool at the bar. And people were just in their bathing suits. There's a band and... Then there's a beach, and you got. I mean, it's just like kind of lo- a lot uh, of was, like it, a lot of like like bamboo and grasses happening. Oh uh, yeah, like all this kind of yeah. It was really surreal. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> it was it was definitely it, the Jersey Shore is interesting. Like that, <laughs> you could, no, you know what's funny about that show? All of the people from that show were from Staten Island, New York. None of them were from New Jersey. Uh, but it is like this was much more like this is the only beach I have been to recent in recent memory that actually lives up to those Jersey shore stereotypes. Like it, <laughs> okay. it, it, it's totally like that. That like, good. eh? the other beaches I, you, I, I tend to go to just are not like that at mm. all. So it was so packed. I mean, do, it was crazy. Do you realize that, um, it was also, uh, Canada's national day this last week. Ah, I did not realize that. Well, yeah, I, I, I think as an American, I, I feel yeah. like that is so American to yeah. not realize that. Well, I mean, it, it's not like the rest of the world has you know any particular, um, you know, particularly elevated understanding of American culture. It's just that it's what whatever goes on in America tends to tends to make news around the world in the way that what happens in most other countries doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, July first is is Canada Day. We we it tends to be a pretty. Um, uh, it's actually great. It's like, you know, kind of laid back family affair, right? Everybody's got a holiday and uh, you mainly barbecue and get together with friends, fireworks, parades, sometimes things like that. Not a lot of military demonstrations in my experience of uh, various Canada days that I've been a part of. Um, and until recently, not so much down your side of the border either. But Now, that's what's interesting about the whole military Trump parade thing. I thought, like, as you know, I just thought it was sad. I mean, I, if you're going to do a military parade, it's got to be awesome. I mean, like, just having a couple of stationary tanks sitting here and there isn't. That's not a parade. That's not showing off. That's you know. Well, what's so funny is you know, Trump got this idea because Macron really pulled out the stops on Bastille Day, and Trump was like so envious. Like he had Macron envy, <laughs> and like, but you know, I, for the, in general, I think for the most powerful nation state probably i would guess that's existed uh, definitely militarily and probably economically we generally one of our america's virtues and our vices are many 
you know, are manifold and multiple and manifold. But yeah, we generally have not <laughs> done stuff like that. We don't generally have not. Like this is generally what illiberal states do. You see more of this in North Korea and stuff like that. Like we generally have not done a lot of this type of thing. Like it, like excessively mm. on the national scene like that. So it, it, it well, didn't. You know, I, I so I suspect. Like I yeah, and I get it was a break with tradition, but I can I can understand a lot of people, you know, and asking, well, you know, why not? You know, we got all this great stuff. It's what's wrong with celebrating our our military, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating our military. But I, I I suppose my guess is that to the extent there are people who don't agree with changing the tradition of how the United States has done it, I think of. Uh, I think of like, you know, gridiron football metaphors. And, you know, there's some people who score touchdowns and they do some elaborate dance and they show off. And there are other people who show touchdowns and just flip the ball to the referee and get back, you know, to the huddle for the extra point. And, you know, you ask, you ask the latter group, why, you know, so how come you don't do a touchdown dance? And, you know, it's usually some version of, you know, when you score a touchdown, act like you've been there before. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't like, you know, this is just old hat for me. And I suppose, you know, the American military would say, like, unlike a lot of other countries that feel they need to do a parade to remind the world that they've got weapons, uh, you know, most of us looking around the room in the military, we we have uh, we have battlefield experience. I mean, we 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 deploy pretty regularly around the world. People know that the U.S. is a military superpower. And, and you know, and it's just inelegant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's <laughs> to, incredibly to, to trumpet inelegant. In front, to trumpet in front of people on, on our national day. Trumpet in front of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that will be, I think that's the strongest form of the argument. Why not? But, you know, I've, as you say, like in France, they have uh, military parades on, on Bastille Day. So it's not like there is some incompatibility with democracy to um you know trot out the big guns and uh, and have a have a spectacle about it. it it really is a kind of um i guess cultural choice but it's interesting and i feel like you know it would have been great as with any you know conscious change uh, to our culture and traditions if there had been a you know really interesting debate about it as opposed to a well i like this idea yeah I, I, and donald trump does that to a lot of american politics i think for instance when he said we're just going to pull out of uh you know Syria, do all the, you know, out of the Middle East, like, you know, and, and his Secretary of Defense, Mattis, with left. And this was sort of a flipping thing, which he didn't even follow through on. And you know, Trump's decision to withdraw. But actually, our troop presence in places like that is a real debate. And I mean, there are people that are going to serve in Afghanistan soon, if not already, who were not alive during 9-11, 9-11 happened. Hmm. So we took care of the Nazis and the Japanese in like five years. Right. Like <laughs> now, you know, this is this is where, you know, I, I forget something for mm. we, this, I mean, our, this is the difference between sort of, you know, conventional military conflict and insurrections. And yeah, of our like 200. Yeah. And, what are we? 230 plus uh, 240, uh, uh, what, three years old or something. Mm. I'm trying to do this in my head. But wait, I, I think of of those 243 years, like 200 and. 20 some we've been at war at some point you got to look in the mirror and say maybe the problem's me 
<laughs> you know, like at some point, you know, you have a couple bad relationships, okay, but then at certain points, they're never working out. Maybe it's you look in the mirror and say, maybe it's me, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we, we don't need to kind of uh, spend all our time talking about it. It, it. it is a deep well of interesting things to to uh, to reflect upon, right? The, the role of military in life and, and, and what military represents. And I was uh, just a few days ago uh, giving another workshop. I've been doing a series of them um, with the Ministry of Defense in the UK on artificial intelligence. Um, and this one was at a at a Royal Air Force's base, and you know, really interesting talking to to sort of the the defense analyst community about AI because you know so much of the um, you know the military confrontations of the future are are going to be cyber war are already cyber war, and there's I mean there if you're in that domain, there's a ton of interesting questions. Um, like in in classic what they what in the military they call kinetic warfare like you know guns and bombs and stuff there are pretty well defined norms in the international community about reciprocity so you know if i shoot down one of your planes what is a reciprocal response right i mean and george hw bush before the first war in iraq the one that was you know largely an international coalition and and viewed successfully you know it was it was a sort of minimalist get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. I mean, he had uh, like ethicists, theologians, like like there were like talking about just war theory hmm. the night you know the, before hmm. he launched the attack. Like thinking about you know what are like so yeah. I mean these are these yeah that those that there's centuries they have they have those on Fox News too. Oh, all the time. Sean Hannity. <laughs> well, well, Trump calls Hannity. You know Hannity, or actually it's Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson was the guy that talked him out of the um, Iran strike apparently. So, Sean Hannity, it's a, it's a fight for Trump's year between eight and nine o'clock. Because at nine o'clock, <laughs> Hannity was saying Trump's got to do something, and at eight at eight o'clock hour, Tucker Carlson was sort of the populist kind of praising the restraint. So I mean, yeah. So that's good to know. Good to know that there's you know some some process of kind of you know getting a moral survey on what should what we ought to do. Um, but, you know, as we get into new dimensions of warfare, like cyber warfare, I mean, it's not clear that anybody knows what the oughts are, right? Like, what is a reciprocal response to um, an, an incursion to sort of U.S. electoral systems, right? Um, or, or what happens when they hack the power grids? Yeah, right. Yeah, like, I mean, and, 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 and I mean, so, that's a civil, that's sort of like a bombing of Dresden kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Where you were, you know, you're, you're targeting civilians purposefully hmm. you know and most a lot of cyber warfare would do that just just that right it's 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 focusing on non-combatants that's right well i mean so one of the most devastating things that you might be able to do is um you know hack an algorithm that's really useful or it's really important um and so you know how do societies keep the useful algorithm safe yeah like from... that like how pissed off do you get if your partner or your roommate or somebody screws up your Netflix algorithm by watching oh, something. Oh, I know. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then, think like, about what are all these Think about it on a bigger scale. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, suddenly nobody's getting to work on time. But if so. Bernie Sanders gets elected, it'll be, nobody will have to be on their aunt's Netflix. Everyone will have their own free Netflix account. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that there are a lot of people. Do you who have anybody that, that is on your Netflix account because they don't have a ton of money? 
Like, uh, I think we have two people who are young millennials from oh, churches. Really? You, 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 you give the access our... to your family yeah. account. Oh, that's, yeah. that's beautiful. See, Bernie Sanders would say, in a true democracy, you wouldn't need to do that. <laughs> there must be there must be some kind of app community for that now or you know there, there, there somebody somebody's figured out how to, how to organize that giving surely craigslist craigslist uh, i thought they organized other forms of giving on craigslist but um. you know what I, w- I would say too about the military that I, I i think really should be celebrated i mean i i, I mean yeah I, many things ma- many many things but david french who's been on my interview show give and take a few times he's a prominent conservative editor for and writer for the national review he's on meet the press a lot bill maher things like that he's an, one of the early never trumpers evangelical christian lawyer volunteered to go to iraq uh, and he he wrote a great piece about police shootings and something where he used to really uh, defend the police more until he really looked into the data and footage and things one of the things he was saying like he was a jag right lawyer you know in in the jag corps in iraq but he he had to go like help with treaties and things and he was in he was in some pretty tense situations right and he saw guys young guys right like you know 19 20 21 inc exercise incredible restraint uh, like under you know with force restrictions sort of just mm. in incredibly dangerous spots because they're so well trained with force like risk and he says like the police are not it's so asymmetrical the way police are trained right in the united states so like he's just like you know i i, I he's really sort of uh become a lot more critical of police in police shootings because he's just like in the military, you wouldn't get away with any of this. There'd just be so much. Not that he's saying all police shootings are, are bad or anything, but he's saying a lot of these things, their cops are just overly aggressive, overly anxious. The, the training isn't there. Right. In the way a military trains a, a, young, a younger guy to, to exercise incredible restraint in really difficult situations at times, you know, in, in urban, you know, war zone kinds of I, things. I'm, I'm reminded of, do you remember it was, uh, it must have been. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, there was um, there was uh, someone driving a truck through downtown Toronto who I think had injured or maybe even killed a couple of pedestrians. And yeah. then this police officer exercised this enormous restraint when he managed to get him into custody. And it was pretty clear from – and somebody was videotaping it that – that this this driver he he was attempting to kind of like be killed by a cop I forget the, what the he was part was. of the incel movement yeah right and he kept sort the of involuntary like moving celibate. as if he was drawing a gun to fire but the cop recognized that he didn't have a gun um or at least that he wasn't somehow he recognized that he wasn't going to fire and and he kept talking him down shutting him down until he until he gave himself up and I remember that part of the kind of the international press coverage around that event was as a kind of uh, a model of the restraint that the police officer had showed, because I mean, when it's your own life on the line, it's, well, I mean, I've had no training, but it's hard for me to imagine not my, my, my fear for my own existence, not driving, you know, and overriding whatever training I might have had um, to protect myself in, in, in that situation. So it's, I mean, like so many things, it's, it's it's remarkable how 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 richer the how much richer the story becomes once we sort of try to get inside every every character of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Where do you want to go? That was like go, that was like fifteen I, I minutes. I don't want to go like back to fifteen minutes of saying hello. 
I don't want to go back to that beach. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I might go back on a week. I would actually like to go back on a weekday to see if it's not as crazy. Like, you know, Fourth of July weekend is a pretty crazy day to to go. Here, you know, I think. Can I? This is this is very random, but can I share something? Uh, something, something really unexpected that happened to me this week. Yes. So one of uh, one of my readers, um, guy that we've I've been like chatting back and forth with on email for a while, passing through London this week, and uh, and so we got together for a drink, um, and and he gave me this, which you can see. That is a. Rock. It looks like a rock. It's a rock. It's a rock. What um, kind of rock? Is it like a space rock? Yeah. Yeah. It's a 4.6 billion year old chunk of meteorite. How did I guess that? Well, because otherwise it would, there's like, there's got to be a story. And that's the only one that came to you. Yeah. I mean, like, I was like, well, I just thought, like, I don't, like, it's got to be a, it looks like a space rock. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so. And like, not all rocks are 4.6 billion years old, I guess, you know, most, most rocks over sort of thousands or millions of years, they, they, uh, they erode or they get melted in magma or, you know, some kind of tectonic activity ends them. Uh, but this thing was sort of in the protective emptiness of space for, yeah, the last four and a half billion years. And then, and then crash landed into, uh, this guy's field in rural Canada, um, Sometime in the in the eighties, I suppose, and he 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 has a few more chunks, and he always carries one around, and and he he gave it to me to carry around. Um, a piece of the infinite is what he called it, and uh, I've only had it for a couple of days, but but I'm starting to think that like this is going to be a very kind of a very helpful talisman, if you will, to to reflect upon, you know, so much of what we are working on. Of you know of what society struggles with is it is, is so temporary, right? Um, and uh, and 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 so many of the things that sort of make us vulnerable with a capital V uh, are so completely beyond our control or our influence. You know, like things like meteors from space and stuff like that. Uh, it, it, it's really quite fascinating to hold it in my head. The other thing, so I had to, you know, I also had to look it up. Like, what is a meteorite worth? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, so, depending on the meteorite, I would guess. So uh, more than its weight in gold. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually. So very, how much is that worth in your hand? Probably about, um, probably about like fifteen or 20,000 US dollars. Are you serious? Seriously. You, that's a $20,000 rock? <laughs> These are rock, yeah. Are you going to sell it? I well, sell I think it. I, I suspect the thing is that there's a pretty illiquid market for these things. Um, I imagine if you wanted to sell it, first thing you'd have to do is convince someone that it is a meteorite. Um, this guy, this guy who gave it to me, is an astrophysicist. So I assume I didn't ask him exactly where he got it dated, but he probably went to the local university and and um, did some carbon dating on it. So, so what ha happens? I think with meteorites is that when the rock forms, there's usually some uranium in there and the uranium decays into lead at a predictable rate and so you can measure how long ago the uranium got trapped in uh, in the rock or something like that and figure out its age so i imagine you'd have to take it somewhere first pay somebody to do that give you i don't know like some certificate that we did this test and uh, I, I don't know if you can like can you take a can you take a, a chunk of space rock to like 
Christie's or some auction house and see. I, That's I, a great question. I would want to know where somebody you wants to pay for it. But I, I mean, I would never sell it because somebody gave it to me. So That's it's not amazing. a market good, right? It's been given to me in a way that it, it's not a market good. Um, I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. So piece, it's interesting because I thought when you said that about about what's not in control, because I was thinking yesterday about the nature of freedom. Because so much of what we celebrate in the United States on Independence Day is is our sort of our you know our declaring our independence from Great Britain and and setting up you know the United States of America in a long process but so much of that was this idea that that liberty would be at its foundation that freedom that not that you know there weren't freedoms and things like that in Europe or you know that but that I think one of the things that's interesting about United States history and some people I mean, Stanley Harawas, the great ethicist at Duke, said, you know, the United States is the only country that has the misfortune of being founded on a philosophical mistake, not an Enlightenment fan. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but what United, the United States is different is, I think, in, in continental Europe, you know, and where when the liberal democratic sort of Enlightenment tradition was taking place, it, it, it's, it's taking place in tension with over against more ancient pre-modern traditions, right? And these things are evolving together. So you have these, you know, parliament, right? Is this great representation of this modern democracy. And, and it's in the shadow of, you know, Buckingham Palace, which is the anti-modern, right? Like, and, and all this stuff like learns to coexist together and, and, and evolve together. Whereas in the United States, there was kind of an attempt to wipe the slate a little cleaner and, and, and start from the ground up with these enlightenment presuppositions, mm. You know, not with a bunch of pre-modern institutions, you know, like looming on the horizon. I was thinking, you know, what does it mean to be free? You know, what is the nature of freedom? Like, what is liberty? And good question, Isaiah Berlin. (laughs) Exactly right. You know, like like it's you know what what's the nature of liberty? And are we are we more free? Now, are, are we going in a, tra- in a trajectory where we're more free, you know, where we're, where our, in the United States, where we're, our politics are more liberative for more people or not, you know, and, mm. and, and, and that's an interesting question. It's a really interesting question. I mean, and it's, it's interesting as well how the moment you start to explore that question in, in a kind of comparative way, like how different parts of the world would answer it. And you kind of one immediately becomes aware of how it, it it's so specific to you know the narrative right like i i think the us and and you know and and europe i mean europe was you know it was um it was a land of sort of you know kings and princes and czars and basically you know like Caesar wannabes, right? It was it was what czars and kaisers and what were there a few others? I mean, yeah, everybody everybody wanted to be wanted to be kind of the new Caesar, and and so you know authority was some project of heredity, you know, trying to marry the right people and and expand the claims that you had to you know various succession assets and stuff like that, and and then. You know, the French Revolution um, was was about trying to, and so much political philosophy at the time was about this enlightened philosophy was about trying to say, well, okay, if we're going to emancipate ourselves from from 
historically derived authority, then we're going to need some kind of mechanism whereby we can just give it to ourselves and it have that same kind of that same kind of sacredness. And so freedom became about the realization of of that, it seems. So I mean I think that for most people in kind of the democratic world, if even if they don't know well, let's say well, and the democratic world is a is itself a pretty complicated and varied place right now. But um Did you see what Putin said about Western liberalism and I forget I saw it in the business insider. I forget it's where over. He, it's, he said Western liberalism is irrelevant. And the funny thing was Trump was asked about this comment while he was meeting with Putin in Japan at the G20 or whatever. And he said, well, what do you think of President Putin's statement that Western liberal about, you know, that Western liberalism is obsolete? And Trump said, well, he looks at these cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, sees the homelessness, the mismanagement, and he sees what they're very liberal cities. They're you know run by liberal Democrats. They, <laughs> he thought he was talking about Democrats <laughs> in the United States. I'm like, wow, yeah, wow. Liberals, liberals in the American context, yeah. <laughs> but it, Putin's Putin's comments were really interesting because he said, you know, take for instance, I think people want traditional values more than liberal liberal this liberalism that lets all these immigrants come in and commit whatever crimes. There must be you know accountability. And, and, and Putin sort of saying, I can take care of. Pop, you know, he was playing the, this populist tune masterfully. Hmm. I think <laughs> I feel like I'm standing at a crossroads, and there are sort of like ten ten avenues radiating out from it, and they're all sort of broad and tree lined and and beautifully fascinating uh, on this question of you know what is what is you're like fr you're like that pr frost in the road not taken. Yeah. Well, so or the road, the road but less, no, but, the road you know, we, we've less got, traveled. We've got time and endless tape, so we'll just take. Do you know them that all. poem is totally the way we're taught to read that poem, or the way I was taught to read it. The way everybody reads that poem is total bullshit. Yeah, what? It, because it's all like, well, you know, I took the road less traveled. That's made all the difference, right? Hmm. But he said that on that morning, equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Like that, you know. He says the other one, you know. Then took the other just as fair, perhaps having the better claim, uh, because it was grassy and and, and wanted wear. Uh, although, as for that passing, had warned them really about the same. He's like, it, it really is not really that much less traveled. <laughs> but then he says at the end, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. But he's he's saying that like I'm going to be saying this as if. I made this, that, that it was an arbitrary choice and I'm going to be looking back on it, uh, saying that I, I made this really principled decision. Like I took the road, you know, that it was distinct, like the romantic, the individual, and that made the difference. But when you, if you read the poem, he's like, the roads aren't, uh, you know, and he says, you know, I took this one because it was grassy and wanted where those for the passing there had warned them really about the same. So one looked like it wanted where so did the other. Like, I just took this one. Hmm. But he's like, well, I'm going to make it seem like I took the one no one else took to give meaning to my choices in my existence. Don't don't take Robert Frost away from me. It's a great point. I actually think it's deeper. <laughs> it's actually, I think, I think the way. Yeah. The, you're, you're, it, what it, you're it, really it, saying is that we have this sort of naive simplicity that we, you know, we're all just kind of. Yeah. It, it, I think it's sort of and like also a, a warning about... against the stories we tell ourselves about mm. the choices we made mm. and how we make up stories to make them make sense. Like, you know, so 
I think, it's pretty interesting. I think there's also, like in the classic way that it's taught, it seems to be a call to, you know, don't don't be a part of a group. Go off on your own direction. Sort of that. Yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 you know, whether it is meaning or success or achievement or whatever the whatever the goal is it's somehow better to to go off in in the the loner direction and and i think i mean the I, and there's some virtues there right about like not getting stuck in groupthink and stuff like that and being true to yourself but there is something also about you know actively participating in something larger than yourself that is in 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 the naive kind of reading of that poem, sort of ignored, right? That 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 sometimes being part of a community, um, sometimes yeah, sometimes yes. subsuming your own like kind of restless need to be utterly individual into some something that feels greater than me, right? Like it's not about me. It's not about ourselves. I think. Um, so when you talk about it being deeper, I think that the, in the deeper reading of the poem, it, 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 it suffers less from, boy, now we're becoming literary critics. This is great. I was going to say – There's a whole book recently, like two years ago, written about this poem and in the misreading of it. Okay. Like it's, it's, and this is the most Googled like Speaking English of, poem. Like, I mean the guy talks about this. It is the, is the, it is the piece of English verse, English language verse that's most popular, hmm. most Googled, hmm. most identifiable. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I am speaking of poems misattributed. What do you think of somebody I'd seen it on whatever news program that like the kind of the who is this Marianne Williamson? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it had to do that. She's the Oprah candidate. Yeah, she was the one who said this quote that is famously attributed to Nelson Mandela about, um, you know, our fear is not that we're helpless, but that we're too powerful or something like that. Do you know the quote that I'm talking about? I don't know the quote. Um. Uh, I could, I could. Let's see if I can find it. But she's the Oprah candidate, dude. Oprah should just run. Cause you know what, Trump, try to call Oprah a socialist. Her house is bigger than yours. You can't <laughs> call Oprah a socialist. <laughs> uh, our fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. That one, anyway. Um, yeah, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate; it is that we are powerful beyond measure. So now, and now, I don't know what to believe. I mean, yeah. Who said it? Really, really? Who said it? Well, the New York Times apparently did a story on it in 2011, so they might have a view on, on which it is. Anyway, where was it going? Freedom. Okay, but again, Freedom. you know, and China, not to talk too much about it, but in, but in China, you know, where there is no history of emancipation from, um, well, no history is a strong word, but where, where there just isn't the same history of emancipation from, um, you know, the sort of hereditary war between kings and states, there's still, you know, like in um, in kind of an imperial Chinese context, then, you know, freedom is to live in a, a well-ordered society, right? Where you've got some uh, son of heaven who can understand how society should be ordered in order to um, maintain Sort of a, a harmony with the celestial movements, right? So, so it, it's not it's not so much in obedience to anyone, but uh, in a kind of finding of harmony, which I think I mean everybody I think can relate to. There is some truth in that as well, right? When we when we are 
kind of out of harmony, then we uh, we can be a prisoner to you know I guess the metaphor would be a prisoner to chaos, but but also a prisoner to to appetite, a prisoner to to disorder, like a, a kind of a prisoner to the to the uh, the, the the weakness and the. Mm, um, I'm searching for the word. It's Friday afternoon for me here, so I'm already starting to wind down the brain. But right, like a weakness to the, you just can't get, you just can't get real stuff done because of the disorder and the chaos. And so, so harmony helps us to become, you know, become our best selves to help society become its best self. And 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 freedom is. So I guess if I step back a minute. At a minimum, like two big branches on freedom are, is it something that I can individually possess or is it a kind of, uh, you know, a social good, right? You know, can you live free in an anarchic society without any, any kind yeah. of law and order? Um, and, and, yeah. and now, now we're getting back into kind of, you know, Western political thought around the, the state of nature. And and what is the state yeah, of nature? I, and is if state of nature is kind of you know land of the beast, then by coming together in political society um, and kind of saying that we're going to govern ourselves with some predictable laws, that that is, although in some ways it's a it's a restriction we place upon ourselves. In another ways, it it frees us to um, you know to. Uh, a life of a bit more predictability and, and also to a capacity to um, collaborate with one another. So, yeah, yeah, I'm rereading this book right now, The One, the Three, and the Many by Colin Gunton. Uh, these were lectures he gave in 1992. It's fantastic book. But in, it, in the introduction, he says, This is the pathos of modernity in both the failed experiments of modern totalitarian regimes and the insidious homogeneity of consumer culture, there is a tendency to submerge the many in the one. Where the true one is displaced, false and alienating gods rush to fill in the vacancy. So he, he thinks there that like that in modernity, you know, mm. you you look at people less as in this sort of harmony and order, like you're saying, in a Chinese perspective. Everybody's part of a unit. Everybody like, you know, we tend to think like if if certain kinds of Eastern thought think Unity is what most real reality is like an ocean, right? Like I think modern Western thinking is more like atomistic. Like the most real thing is the smallest part. So mm. what's an what's a cell, a bunch of atoms? Like what's a an organ, a bunch mm. of cells? What's a body, a bunch of organs? What's a family, a bunch of individuals? Mm. What's a city, a bunch of families and associates? What's you know that so, is basically yeah that's you know, interesting because that that kind of that way of thinking is sort of the rational project, right? Going right back to the Greeks where they break it yeah, down. Yeah. We used to have these parts, sort of totalizing yeah. myths. And then we discovered that, well, we can actually break the reality down into pieces that are explainable. And once that becomes the project, then it seems that, that that's the path to knowledge and what's real. And that aggregates things that are say, you know, so, you know, the, the, the systems theorists would say, you know, listening to our conversation. So, you know, freedom to some extent is an emergent property of, yeah. of a system, yeah. right? It's not something that you can find in the piece. It's, it's a condition of the system and the way that, you know, trust, well, d does trust exist? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, in what way does it exist? It's not like you can kind of, you know, you know, shine a laser on my, 
little piece of meteorite and see an atom of trust inside it. It it it, it, it exists as a kind of social reality, um, and I suppose that I suppose that that is a bit of the hmm, kind of one of the core tensions. And it's interesting that we live in this time where there's just so much more exchange between different freedom projects, you know, across humanity. Um, but, but, you know, do we find it, do we advance it in the lives of individuals, in, in, in the lives of, of, of the group, right? I mean, you know, one of the big, big questions, I guess, really being asked, um, in American society in the 2020 election and sort of Democrats versus Republicans is, you know, do we advance the cause of freedom by removing people's like economic, like socioeconomic constraints and burdens? Um, or would that be uh, trespassing on people's property freedoms? Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so, you know, the, Modern story is so polarized between Democratic and Republican, but there's there are really rich and long, you know, traditions on on both sides, right? I mean, you go right, back right. to John and Locke, also, and it was all one, about property, really. I mean, <laughs> right? And and one kind of freedom is negative kind, right? Like one of the freedom is sort of freedom from coercion or constraint, freedom from people sort of determining your own pursuit of happiness, kind of thing, right? And the other is freedom. Like sort of giving you goods and opportunities so that you can actualize, self-actualize and things like that, 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 that lots of people, you know, it's not just yeah. that certain people are freer than others, right? Like certain kinds of resources and, and certain, and the system, so, you know, free market systems, you know, create lots of wealth and things, but, but also it's not, there are all sorts of systemic inequalities and in how free, you know, so how do you have this tension between liberty and equality, right? right. Like, and there's a tension there, right? Yeah, there is. I and there are, but both the things, and there are both things that I think we broadly agree on in Western political life that, that somehow we want both of these in some measure, uh, you know. But that the idea is that one can encroach on, on the other too much or something. Yeah, I, well, more broad avenues to go down. Here's just a random aside. Did you ever read Amartya Sen, this famous development economist? No. Uh, so he wrote a book called Development as Freedom. Back in, uh, it's quite a while ago now. It must have been in the 1990s. Um, and basically, basically, it's one of the one of the most succinct and, and and just best arguments for the freedom too, and 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 how you know development in terms of um, helping. Uh, you know, he's a, he's an Indian economist, and he was speaking about you know, poor societies generally, but helping poor societies to become wealthier, um, and thereby you know have. Uh, the 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 you know both freedom from certain things like um disease and hunger uh but also freedom to uh invest in their own education and consume and things like that 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 this is what freedom really was um at least at a global scale what what the most important frontier of advancing freedom freedom was i suppose it's it's interesting to think about you know, as you frame it, this is kind of the tension that, you know, you, you describe it to people and they obviously kind of want both. They both want sort of, you know, the freedom from just arbitrary and capricious force, uh, you know, frustrating their lives. Um, but also the freedom to, 
um, build lives of meaning and purpose and, and, and growth and significance for, for themselves. I mean, who's going to disagree with that? And then the question is, do we, how do we go about reconciling those? To the extent that they are intention, right? To the extent that, well, what we want to do is the, the group kind of wants to confiscate some of your property and that everybody be, be agree with that so that we can give other people some freedom from some, 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 some wants and, and, uh, and just other constraints that impose upon them. I think that's a, you know, a, yeah. So the question becomes, how do we do a better job of, 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 of kind of fruitfully exploring that tension. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that, I mean, and I think that's at the heart of like the whole, the current sort of populist mm. debate right now. I mean, I had David French on who I mentioned earlier on the, on give and take last week. And I love, I've had him on like three, three times, four times. A day. I really like him a lot. He and I politically are in different ends of the spectrum, but what we realized is that, what we we have in common is that we're sort of it, it's now becoming almost like liberals the cla- the, the people that are that believe in liberalism and small l kind of liberalism in the are are in one camp left and right and then there are illiberals populists like po- illiberal populists left and right right like you know who you know who on both extremes who are really cynical about the liberal democratic sort of project you know and in because it you know it doesn't seem to work for enough people yeah so i think that's so i mean i think that's a lot of the debates playing up the other thing too i just think about freedom that i'm so since our last episode our zizek uh, peterson discussion i have been reading zizek and really fascinating stuff and i'm right now i'm reading through his book absolute recoil come on which pull is, up pull up, pull up the zizek impression <laughs> I, I, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard to get into it. Want to, you know, I love. I love that yeah. one thing you said. We started out last week. I mean, godlike figure comes to Slovenian peasant, and he says, "I give you anything you want, but the thing is, you must give your neighbor double." He says, <laughs> "Fine, he, make me blind eye. in one eye." <laughs> Look at the cover of this book, though. I mean, for a philosophy text, it's so sexy. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, if for people that can't see it, it's like silver or glossy. But in it, in the section in the early in the book, he's talking about the nature of freedom. And he talks about, he has this section and he's an atheist. He's, you know, material, dialectical materialist. He calls himself, uh, when he's kind of reinventing that term a little bit, but he, he talks about acting with the grace of God. And he talks about this Jesuit, the spiritual practices of the Ignatian tradition, the society of Jesus, uh, these Ignatian, uh, this Jesuit sort of spiritual practices are not, are meant so that you can discern God's will, but not that you're like, get rid of your own subjectivity, but that you, actually take it more seriously and he taught and then he goes in this little kind of discourse on descartes and he sort of says how descartes thinks it's only when you become a fatalist that you're free when you when you believe in something like predestination because he's like otherwise you objectify your freedom and try to game it out well if i do this i do this and you see all these consequences when you're not and he thinks it makes you actually less free but he thinks when you act as if you're not free everything's determined but i don't know the plan so I can't act like I can't act like my choices are going. I can game them all out and know what they mean. I can just choose what I'm choosing. I can really be a subject mm. and really freely choose. And he thinks the only way you can freely choose is to believe in something like this predestinating and, and this. And he calls that acting with the grace of God. But he thinks that that sort of sense that you choose, knowing that the outcome is sort of 
the contingency of events is played out. It's going to play out in a way that you're going. It's going to feel predestined that you you really and yet you still take it seriously. And then he's got this great uh, footnote. He says postmodern philosophers from Nietzsche onwards express their prefer- preference for Catholicism over Protestantism. Catholicism is a culture of external playful rituals in contrast to the inner sense of guilt and the pressure of authenticity that characterizes Protestantism. Mm. We're allowed to just follow the ritual, ignore the authenticity of our inner belief. However, the playfulness should not deceive us. Catholicism resorts to such subterfuge to save the divine big other in his goodness. While the capriciously, quote, irrational predestination in Protestantism confronts us with a God who is ultimately not good and all-powerful, but indelibly stained by the suspicion of his being stupid, arbitrary, even outright evil. The implicit dark lesson of Protestantism, Protestantism is, if you want God, you have to renounce part of the divine goodness. <laughs> it's so great that this idea that you have to have this sort of sense that things are not in your control to be free. You know, that, that when you realize that, I mean, I guess this is sort of the serenity prayer. Some great, like, God, give me the wisdom uh, the the wisdom to change things i can change or the wisdom to accept the things i can't change the courage to change the ones i can and 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 the um and it was the the grace to accept the things i can't change the uh courage to change to change the ones i can and the wisdom to know the difference and and i think the wisdom is very small yeah. right like like, like you know so, like the, 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 the that that freedom is a very narrow thing where you're really free because you can control very little, but you can still act. So let me clarify that. So um, having a part of our of our lives that is outside of our control advances our freedom because because you act regardless of the consequences. That you, you that when when you're free from sort of all the calculus of the consequences, mm-hmm. in the sense of. Uh, like he tells this great so, story from which this is Russian to say that there. like sort of like somebody else is worrying about the consequences, so I can just act. I, I guess I guess it's sort of like it's the anti-Kant, right? Where you've got to like figure out you know what the categorical imperative is and figure out the way of acting that everyone would like that that would be the rational action to take and there and then take that action and that's freedom. And I guess someone else is is kind of saying that like that sounds. Like if if that is freedom, then it is such a burden of calculus to come to the one act that counts as free. Yeah, and 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 and, and what this is saying is surely freedom is to not have to do that calculus, to not bear that burden of finding the one act, but instead to, you know more honestly act out yourself yeah he tells this story of this from this russian therapist he knows or something about this guy who's we all know a russian therapist struggling as me exactly (laughs) take two vodka call me in the morning (laughs) i you know uh, you you basically says that there's this patient who is contemplating leaving his wife is their marriage struggling he's estranged and moving and 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 moving into the next town with his mistress so Finally, the day comes, he's going to do it. And he gets in his car and it's rain. It starts pouring and his windshield wiper doesn't work. Right. And so he stops. He has to get it repaired and winds up turning around going home. Doesn't tell his wife this, you know, so was he free? Well, no, I mean, circumstance seemed to determine this. And yet he realizes that that blade had been rickety for a while. He never got it fixed. 
So there were these things that led him to this decision, yet it was also beyond his control. And he winds up not leaving her and he's sitting there. And was it his decision? Yes. He drove back. And yet he, it wasn't a naked kind of freedom. He could only, he could really own his own uh, decisions and responsibility. And yet it felt much more powerless with the rain and failure to, and his choice to not take care of it on time and all these things led him to. So he's talking about this strange paradox of this kind of freedom, you know, like that, that, and that's so, again, so much of life is beyond our control. And, and I think that, that you sort of, I, I think what he, I think what Zizek is getting at it, and I've been rereading the section a few times, but I think what he's saying is also frees you from what Frost is saying, that you don't have to then make up this bullshit story about how even though you had an arbitrary choice in front of you, that the, neither one was less traveled. You know, they were both the same, but I, now I have to tell myself I chose the road less traveled and that's made the difference of whom I am right now. And da, da, da. Like, I think he thinks that you don't have to do that kind of spin when you, when you, you know, he has this great quote, uh, I think it's from Descartes. He's like, the way to act freely is to act like you're not free. <laughs> you know what's really interesting? And I know this is going to sound completely banal to you, but I guess I just sometimes. I love uh, banal. I was in banality all day yesterday. I was at, I was, I was at banal beach. It's fair. It's your national holiday. So you're allowed these, these things. But, but this conversation really brings home for me how, how, um, how tied into Christian thought democracy is. That's, I mean, yeah, I, we, yeah, like, very it is much this so, whole yeah. like the burden to make good choices, right? I mean, we have we have through democracy put upon ourselves such an enormous moral burden to make good choices for the well-being of the of the community, which is a total Christian thing to do, right? It seems like the idea that freedom would be um, freedom from those excruciating moral choices <laughs> just never entered into our head. <laughs> because, of course, it couldn't enter into our head in, you know, a, 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 Euro, a European Christian culture that, you know, had a, a French Revolution. I mean, there was, it, it was within uh, just a soup of uh, moral responsibility that the you know the notions of a kind of a social contract of the sovereign will of the people um, could could sound uh, at all like a good idea, <laughs> right? Yeah, and and so yeah. it's interesting. That, yeah, I, you know, I, I ten years ago when I was doing my my doctoral work in, in in Beijing, and you know, the way to get anybody to a good conversation was to ask them, so what you know, what is freedom really? Because everybody kind of wanted to dispute a, a sort of, you know, Western liberal frame of, uh, you know, we're free, but you're not kind of thing. Um, and and I, I suppose that would be a very strong argument for kind of, you know, if Plato were here, we, we should ask him, like, is this what you meant by philosopher king, right? That that if we got somebody who just sort of making good decisions on our behalf, and okay, so so they can handle all of that responsibility stuff. And and we can focus on um, on ourselves, you know, within some reasonable, and that's what makes them a philosopher king. Like they're being pretty reasonable in terms of setting up the rules of the game. So that, but I don't. I know you want to say a thousand things to that, but I immediately want to complicate my own view around, you know, whether whether freedom sort of inside some higher group think that this sort of been set for us. Is is the best freedom, or or even the healthiest freedom? 
And I'm not sure this is a fair comparison to make, but zooming completely back to where I was a few days ago talking to some analysts in the uh, defense intelligence community about AI and its implications. And, and one of the things that we were talking about is, so one of the threats to AI is if it's putting forth recommendations within an analyst community that kind of only has one shared narrative for how to look at the world, for, for what's relevant and what's not. And even before you had AI giving recommendations that might strengthen that, the, the best way to have a healthy analyst community, and it applies to defense, it applies to pretty much anything, is you need to have at least a couple kind of narratives on the go, right? So that you can come to these recommendations from sort of multiple frames, right? And, and, yeah. and, then like, and, and that's how you sort of get some critical thinking about, well, are we going to accept this recommendation this time? We're going to go another way. Like you've, as soon as you've got groupthink in an analyst community, you're kind of fucked. You need you need to cultivate that, and and so you know I constantly sort of follow the news back in China, and and there is you know, the moral police are out pretty much on a daily basis. You know, kind of government says that you know men in the summer are no longer supposed to kind of like wear their t-shirts hitched up around um, around their chest, which is how 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 you know people in China um, beat the heat. It's like no, that's sort of the, like that mankini look is, is is no longer culturally appropriate, and that's like the moral yeah, police meets yeah, the fashion. Totally. But the, and and then the culture changes, right? Like on mass, and that's like literally a fascist. Season. So it, it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, somebody has too much time on their hands that they like focused on that uh, this week, but but it kind of raises this point about you know how culture then evolves in um in that concept of freedom versus how it evolves in you know say an american concept of freedom and you know i think that there's probably there's a risk when you've got sort of like one narrative driving evolution and driving change and especially cultural evolution but but all domains there's a risk of kind of getting into a sort of state of fragility Right, because what if that narrative gets it wrong? Right, going back to Amartya Sen and his book *Development Is Freedom*, one of his big arguments was that well, the one of the best things you can say about a democracy is that they've never led a state into mass famine before. Right, that like when polit like when policy gets really bad, there's a pretty immediate correction, which you can't trust will happen in uh in authoritarian states but so so you know if you've got groupthink setting the conditions for freedom then there's a kind of fragility about that um if you've got messiness and you do have this kind of diffused responsibility around freedom then then you you get into kind of a much more almost like uh, like organic ecological model of how change happens right you've got sort of the way things are going and some people are changing, but then you get this random mutation that just sends things off in a different direction, like, you know, the Me Too movement or something like that. And, and, and so you get a kind of more diverse ecology of, um, of culture. So we come down to, I guess, boy, wow, we've, we've sort all over the place, but I think what you come down to is a question of, you know, to what extent is freedom, sort of like something to optimize in a status quo 
And to what extent is it a, like a more dynamic concept of freedom where, where, uh, it's sort of an ever shifting journey? I'm not explaining that very well. Like, as yeah. we always do on these calls, yeah, no, you bring me to these no. ideas I've never thought of before. Uh, no, I, I th- think there, there's, it's there's funny because I think I that's, think, sorry, just if it, now I'm getting excited, you know, like that's some right. Of the classic think. texts on freedom, like Isaiah Berlin, you know, the, like the two concepts of liberty, like you said, positive liberty, negative liberty, stuff like that. But, I, I feel like I don't know who's really done who who's done the work on like the static and the dynamic conception of freedom. And and I wonder if a lot of our thinking is kind of within a static model of freedom. And if we think in a more dynamic model of of cultural change and adaptation, how how does that how does that shift things? Like so for example, now I'm talking way too much, but I guess it's anybody else want to say it, but you know, so exactly, right. yeah, you're fine. I'm you're so fine. Canadian. I'm so Canadian. It's like the two of us. Yeah, you're now. so polite. <laughs> but um, oh no, I laughed so hard I lost what I was what I what I was what I was going to say. It was really good too. What were we just talking about? You were talking about static yeah, and dynamic, right. and and yeah, and I I think that's right. I mean, you, I have two thoughts in mind, like. Maybe these are or concluding thoughts. I don't know, but like, so one is from Jesus, and one is from Frederick Douglass that that I was reading yesterday. Which oh, sorry, someone just called me, but uh, I should have that. And do not disturb. Uh, one is something I think from the teaching of Jesus. The other is something a great address. I'll link to it in the show notes called "What to the Slave is Fourth of July." by Frederick Douglass in 1852. It's amazing. But Jesus, when he comes on the scene, you know, in first century Palestine, there are all these sort of apocalyptic movements and apocalyptic prophets in Judaism. And John the Baptist is one of these kind of figures. And they all preach a very similar thing. Not yet, but soon. So the kingdom of God, the apocalypse, with the day of the Lord is going to come and the end of history, not yet, but soon. And when that happens, oppression, you know, death, sin, everything, you know, they are the the pagan imperialism, it all be set right, not yet, but soon. So we got to get ready for it and clean and clean up our lives so that we'll be on the right side of history. And Jesus changes that subtly from not yet, but soon to already and not yet. Like he tells all these parables where the kingdom is elusive and it's bigger than you can think and it's here and yet it's also coming. Right. And so it's so he's like, it's almost like D-Day and V-Day, right? When did the war really end? In some sense, in D-Day, right? Once their beachhead is, is made in early, the early 40s. And yeah, it takes a couple of years for that victory to play out, you know, for that to actually. So the, this, cha- this, this transformation from not yet, but soon to already not yet allows for some tension. Like, I think the dynamism you're talking about, that, that the transformation's here, and yet it's not yet here. Hmm. And, so, and so that allows you. So I was thinking hmm. about that. And then in light of what Frederick Douglass says, he has this, all this critique of like why rightly right the the slave is so perplexed by 4th of July and, and 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 how the nation's not living up to the best intentions of its founders and nor were they living up to their best intentions and he says at the end allow me to say in conclusion notwithstanding the dark picture i have this day presented the state of the state of the nation i do not despair of this country there are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery the arm of the lord is not shortened and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. 
Nations do not stand now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world and trot round in the same old paths of its fathers without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long-established customs of hurtful character could formally fence themselves in and do their evil work with social impunity. Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few, and the multitude walked on in mental darkness. But a change has now come over the affairs of mankind. Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is permeating the darkest corners of the world. It makes its pathway over and under the sea as well as onto the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far-off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. And he goes on with some concluding thoughts. But I, I thought that, as I was reading that, I was thinking this is the perfect already not yet. And it's so much of, of, the, of the speech is not yetness, right? You know, how, how American freedom is so much not yet for the slave. The slave is this, is this stark picture of the not yetness. And yet he sees alreadiness too. Like that, that there's this, and I think that that's sort of, this sort of part of the Americana, I think at its best, I hope, is this very kind of self-criticism that, that, it, that you can't celebrate America without seeing its inconsistencies. You, you can't rejoice in the alreadiness of it without really being convicted uh, and humbled by the not yetness of its charter. So that's interesting because, you know, it kind of brings us back full circle to this question of um, you know, how do we better bring the, like the, the tensions into our politics and that that does seem to be, um, you know, not just a fruitful place, but a kind of net. Yeah, yeah, not framing them as problems. Yeah, right. attention is yeah. great because because not looking to dissolve them, but to see the truth in the well, tension. Well, I mean, this is exactly to see the truth in the tension, and this is you know, so the the uh, the work that you and I were doing in Toronto, kind of bringing together people to to kind of look at the global challenges in the world, and and really to try to you know, begin a cultural shift from kind of a, a cultural shift from, you know, there are these debilitating global crises in the world that must be solved, but they can't be solved. And so it just are, are the font of anxiety and despair and, you know, upheaval and all of that to, um, you know, being liberated by, you know, the existence of these challenges that, that, that mean that we can we can expire past compromises and 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 past solutions and explore uh, new ways of thinking and new ways of working together and that that the very existence of these challenges and that there's a kind of common recognition of them across so many of the divides in society brings us together that in ways otherwise yes, we yes, couldn't, it is, it, and, and yes, so it becomes yes, a sort of wellspring yes. of hope. And it is, in a way, kind of it's it's sad and astonishing. And but the, I think this is also our work is to sort of push back against the narrative that that can only see these as as problems, as as crises 
that divide us and 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 you know isn't willing to um embrace them all as as these uh, these are the best opportunities to achieve um uh, you know a, a a deep and meaningful renaissance in uh in our political culture in in human culture more more broadly because because what better opportunity like not just one to come together in new ways, but two to challenge old ways of thinking and being, and 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 actually, I mean, we're almost we're already there, in the sense that, you know, nowadays in pretty much any room full of like you know formal leadership, there is this widely shared idea that we we we've, we've probably got to make some fundamental changes. Like nobody needs to be yeah. nobody needs to be yeah. sold on that. Yeah. I mean I I go around the world telling the story, but it's 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 just another version of story that other people are. Like everybody knows it already. I mean whatever particular f- sort of perspective you bring that shows that this is true, we already believe that. Uh but but we haven't yet figured out how to um sort of embrace what is exhilarating about these existential challenges. And and and, and yes. yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. So now how we got to land this plane because I got to run. But um, you know, it, it's interesting to think about. So how do we how do we make that shift? So I mean, we're 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 experimenting with how to make that shift in terms of bringing people together into our base camps around these challenges. But like within, and and it'd be interesting to see how you know what does it take to, in essence, transform culture. Um, and making culture the the project and the impact, but it'd be interesting to kind of watch, you know, since it is sort of um, American Independence Day, uh, but like to watch the American political project and to look for is who who is experimenting with and how to create new coming together around the big challenges in. In, in American life, and even even come together to debate, you know these these wonderfully giant questions like what is freedom, um, which you know really you have you know in in the political party system there, um, you know really strong advocates for uh, you know the freedom from and the freedom to, and I think in this moment it presents a just a terrific opportunity to ask. You know, both of both of these parties, as we've been thinking about freedom, have we been too static in our understanding of what makes us free? Is there is there a more dynamic model? And maybe in that dynamism, we see the need both for you know expansive individual action, but also um, you know some 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 investment in in our social capacities of adaptability and resilience. I mean, I, I can't run for president because I'm Canadian, but um, Everybody's trying, right. dude. You should run. <laughs> and run as I should. I mean, I make, should. Make I it should. even more interesting. I, I my slogan would be "Truth, Truth is, is in, in the, the tensions." tensions right? Totally. I mean, so the, it's interesting. I was, there's this Vaclav Havel quote. Uh, this is your last quote, and then we gotta Czech go. Democratic thinker. Yeah, this is it. He said, "Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out." Hmm. Hmm. And I love that. Hmm. Like the the that it's not in the outcomes and things like that, but it's this sort of like I, the stuff you're talking about, yeah. about the, being invested in a meaningful struggle like this, regardless yeah. of how it turns out, but that's, but that it's sensible I, and meaningful. I, 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 I think it's, I love that. It's, and, you know, it's, it's so where it begins. Speaking the other day with, you know, several people who are involved in, in this community that we're building this, this, uh, this community of action around these global base camps. 
And, you know, there is this urgency to answer questions. You know, uh, you know, you know, who, what, what is the core team going to be? And who's the advisory group going to be? And how are we going to decide who the participants are to these amazing events? And how are, there's so much that needs to be decided. And how are we going to decide it? And, you know, and I, I didn't have Havel in my, in my mind the way that you do. Um, but what I, what I talked about is, you know, I think, I think that what we want to do is actually figure out how can we keep everything provisional? Like we don't ever want to reach a final yeah, answer yeah. on these things because the moment that there's a group of people that answers it, it means that there's really nothing else. These are the fun questions. There's nothing else for other people to do. It's going to be a pretty dead community if it's like basically you can come on board to this finished thing and accept all these answers or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to go find something else that I can work on because I prefer unfinished projects. Um, now, reality is that from time to time we need to we need to give a provisional answer, but but but. It, it's always right. provisional, but it's then, always and provisional. Then, you know, and then, what happens in the execution of that answer then becomes input into the permanent debate, right? So, so that yeah. is sort of what yes. the democratic yes. project is about. It's just that we, how do we kind of absolutely? So maybe, maybe that's part of what you know, ex- increasingly polarized polities need to remember, be reminded of that. It's all provisional, folks. Like we've got a system where the conversation yeah, is permanent, yeah. And and so, yeah. even if you really disagree with this decision, it's it's not like it's not like this is it, right? If you're right, yeah. Then and it might, you know, and there might be ten or twenty years of suffering the consequences of getting it wrong. We get that, but if you're right, then it's going to come around the other way. If you're like, yeah, that was the wrong way to go. Yeah. We're going to retrace our steps and go that way. And you know, and I'm holding. Maybe I'll wind up on this. You know, I'm holding this 4.6 billion year old rock in my hand, which is a reminder that, dude, like, every everything, everything is provisional. <laughs> and Absolutely. and really, the only things that endure are our culture, right? Are our ways that have some capacity to transmit, the, not the, not the impacts of actions, but the ways of acting. And the ways of thinking uh, into the far future, and so let's you know let's focus more on those and focus less upon the immediate consequences, uh, and maybe that'll just help us all to have a bit more of that of that um, tolerance for the tensions and tolerance for the unfinished unfinished projects yeah. that you that I think you rightly call upon. And this too is part of it, my friend. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.